Can you please turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 34? Genesis 34. Might want to go to the next slide. Thank you. Genesis 34, there's an outline uh, of where we're going inside your uh, handouts. Some of the handouts you received as you came in. One of them's got an outline in the middle. Uh, might be helpful to have that open in front of you if you want pencils. Uh, pencils at the welcome desk. Uh, feel free to help yourself. Genesis chapter 34. What do you do when trouble comes into your life? What's the first reaction you have when you face a problem that seems to overwhelm you? How do you begin to deal with issues that affect you in a, a deep and emotionally charged way? Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a terrible, terrible situation. An awful event. Something that's, that's so distressing that, that some of you might find it hard to listen to. And if you want to talk to someone afterwards, then come and talk to myself or to Judy or, or to a brother or sister that, that, that you trust in the congregation. But we're going to have to look at this situation. It's a tough one. Back in Genesis 12, God had called Abraham made him great promises. God promised him many descendants. He promised him that his descendants would live in the land of Canaan. He promised to bless him. And through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And God was going to use Abraham's offspring to overturn the curse that the world had been under since the fall. But, in Genesis 15, God had told Abraham that before they received the land, his offspring were going to be strangers in another land. They'd be servants there, afflicted for 400 years, and then eventually come out with great possessions. The reason for the delay was that the sin of the Amorites, the people who lived in the land, had not reached its full measure. Not yet bad enough for God to keep them out. Abraham's son was Isaac. Isaac's son was Jacob. And his brother was Esau. And remember how God had said that Jacob, though he's the younger twin, he's going to be the one who will inherit the blessings. And, and then remember how Jacob cheated and tricked. And he persuaded Esau to sell his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. He tricked his father into giving him a blessing that he'd been reserving for Esau. Esau was furious, wanted to kill Jacob. And his mother sent him a runaway to Padan Aram, far, far from the land of promise. And on his way there, while still in the promised land, God appeared to Jacob in a dream at Bethel. And he gave him the same promises that he gave to his grandfather Abraham. Many offspring, possession of the promised land, and that through him all the nations were going to be blessed. And you remember Jacob's response to the time was to try to bargain with God. If God would bring him back to the promised land, then God would be his God, and he would build an altar there to God at Bethel. Well, Jacob made it to Paran Aram, where he was tricked by Laban. But God blessed him there. And he came out 20 years later with many possessions, big family. And Laban pursued him, but God saved him from Laban. And then last week we saw how Esau was coming to meet him with 400 men. And Jacob prayed humbly to God. 
Midding's unworthiness and God's kindness to him thus far. Clinging on to him for deliverance and crying to him to fulfill his promises. The Lord wrestled with Jacob overnight on the edge of the promised land. Disciplined him, but blessed him. And gave him a new name, Israel. And rescued him from the wrath of Esau. Because the wrath of Esau was a sage and Esau welcomed him as a brother. Well, by the end of chapter 33, it looks like we've come to a happy ending. Jacob and Esau are reconciled. Israel is in the promised land. He even builds an altar to God there called El Elohole Israel, God, the God of Israel. And Jacob, who had previously only called God the God of his fathers, now is his God. But just when everything seems alright, things go wrong. When they go wrong, they go wrong in a big, big way. The end of 33, which we saw last week, Jacob had come to a city in a promised land where a man named Shechem lived and the place where he pitched his tent and built his altar was a piece of land that he bought from Shechem's father, Hamor. See, Jacob was in the promised land, but it still belongs to the Canaanites. In his generation, he still have to buy a piece of land if he wants to use it. And here in chapter 34, they settled in the city. And Dinah, Jacob's only daughter, went out in the city. She was the daughter of Leah, that, that wife that Jacob didn't really love. And she goes out in the city, in verse, in, in verse 1, to see the women of the city. See the women of the land. She, she's, she's not doing anything inappropriate. She's not having a night on the town with the Canaanite boys, or going to the Canaanite nightclub trying to get laid. She, she goes out to see the women of the land. And then, something awful happens. Verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. He raped her. Friends, violence against women is all too common in every society, even our own. It is a wicked sin, always to be condemned. God cares about this, and if we are God's people, then we should care about it as well. We should care about justice against perpetrators. We should care for people who have been victimized. Oftentimes, after a rape, the perpetrator disdains the victim. But, but not Shechem. He's done this dastardly deed to her, but, but he's still attracted to her. Verse 3. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. He's a, he's a complicated character, isn't he? He rapes her, but he loves her. He, he acts violently and then he speaks tenderly. And, and that is what people are like, friends. Even violent aggressors speak tenderly afterwards. Sometimes. Sometimes they may be genuinely upset and try to make up for it and but often they end up doing it again. 
Shechem at this point is drawn to Dinah. But it's not love in the real sense of the term. Real, real love doesn't rape. He's infatuated with her. He desires her. He's obsessed by her. And he wants to marry her. In verse 4. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, Get me this girl for my wife. But think what will happen if he does. Dinah will be with this wicked man for the rest of her life. And even worse, she will be cut off from the people of God. She and her children will become Canaanites, one of the people of the land who have, who have no future in the promises of God. Well, the next scene, Jacob gets news of what happens to Dinah. And curiously, he, he doesn't respond. Instead, he waits for his sons to get back from the field. And so, Hamor, Shechem's father, comes and takes the initiative. He comes to Jacob to speak with him about the marriage, and then her brothers come back and find out what's happened, and, and quite rightly, they are furious. Verse 7, the sons of Jacob had come in from the field, and as soon as they heard of it, the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done such an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Well, Amos seems to calm them down. He says in verse 8, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. No sign of moral indignation on Hamor's part about his son's behavior. Just wants to negotiate this, cover it up, marriage and move on. So he makes his proposal in verse 9. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Hey, that, that might have been a temptation for Jacob. Mightn't it? Now, God wanted them to be separate. He didn't actually say, be separate somewhere, but they know that that's what he wants because of his promises. That's why Abraham didn't want a wife for Isaac from among them. That is why Isaac forbade Jacob from marrying a Canaanite. He sent him away. God's people were to be a holy people people of the land wanted them to integrate, assimilate, become one of them. And they would do well out of it if they did. Dinah could be married to the prince of the city. The land would be theirs. They could trade freely, acquire property, become one of the locals in the promised land. After all, did not God promise them this land? Here's one way to get it. Here's a way of getting the land without having to go through all that 400 year wait that God told Abraham about. Here's a way to settle down in the land they've been promised without being strangers and aliens all the time. Here's a way to avoid being treated cruelly in another place. Why not take a shortcut and settle down there? Get the gain without the pain. 2,000 years later, the devil would show Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor and offer to hand it over to Christ. After all, that is God's plan, isn't it? Jesus is the prophesied ruler of all. 
And now his main opponent, the one who controls the forces of evil, who stand in the way of the kingdom, is offering just to, to give it. He could be the king to bring justice to the earth and rule the world in righteousness and equity and don't have to go to the cross to bring in the kingdom. Not have to bear the sins of his people as he hangs there. He can have the gain without going through the pain. All this I will give you, he said. You bow down and worship me. Join my side. And Jesus says, Away from me, Satan. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Well, how about us? When are we tempted to take the shortcut? When are we tempted to take the easier road to what we think is good for us than the road that God has set before us? When we tempted to go for the gain that is meant to come after the cross instead of taking up the cross and waiting to be vindicated? Perfect happiness, perfect relationships, perfect health, prosperity, wealth. All that's promised on the other side in glory. And sometimes we're tempted to grab at them now and do the wrong things by doing that. Assimilation with the Canaanites. That might have been a temptation for Jacob, but he's quiet. Amos dangling the carrot there. But we finally see Shechem speaking himself in verse 11. Let me find favor. He's talking to the father and brothers. Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and, and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. No sign of remorse from Shechem. No evidence of repentance. He had spoken tenderly to her, but there's no sign of repentance here. But he is desperate, isn't he? Blinded by his feelings for Dinah, he offers not, not only the bride price, but, but a gift as well. Having raped Dinah, he wants to buy her, and he tells the brother and the father, name your price. But little does he know who he's up against. The sons of Jacob are the sons of Jacob. And they are just like their father. Jacob was a liar and a cheat and these guys know how to do it as well and they are very good at it. Verse 13 The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition we agree with you, that you will become as we are, by every man among you being circumcised. And if you want us to join you, if you want us to dwell among you, then at least outwardly you must join our religion. Get circumcised. Uh, become one of us as, as we become one of you. You'll meet us halfway. And then, verse 16, 
then we will give our daughters to you, you will take your daughters to ourselves, we will dwell with you and become one people, but if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. And how does Hamor and Shechem respond? Well, they think it's, they think it's okay. The words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. They are willing to, to convert outwardly in order for the marriage to happen. They go back to their people. Verse 19. The young men did not delay to do that thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of the city saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as our wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people. When every male among us is circumcised, as they are circumcised, but will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. Notice how they spin it. When they're talking to Jacob and his sons, it's, hey, come and trade with us, you know, get property among us, and get rich among us. And they're talking to his, their people, it's, hey, we can get their livestock, we can get their property, we can get their beasts. And they slip on the circumcision in the middle. Well, Shechem and Hamor are persuasive. And the people are greedy. And so in verse 24, all who went out the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of his city. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. These people who had no part in the covenant took on that sign essentially for mercenary reasons. And they would reap the reward of their action. Friends, you cannot play the fool with God. Don't just get baptized so you can marry someone or get someone off your back. Don't just take the Lord's Supper to pretend to be a Christian if you're not a Christian in your heart. These are serious things. Mucking around with God's sign just brings judgment upon us. These people are circumcised out of greed. Except for Shechem who is circumcised out of desire for a woman. But little did they know that it was a trap. Two of Dinah's brothers, Leah's sons, decided to take things in their own hands. Verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, and probably some of their men as well, and came against the city while it felt secure, and killed all the males. It was a massacre. They slaughtered the people of the city. And in verse 26, they killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword. Sure, they would have enjoyed the irony that the part of the body that Shechem had used against their sister was the part that led to his own downfall and death. Vengeance was sweet. But this wasn't just a mission of vengeance. 
Up to now we didn't know this, but it's actually also a mission of rescue because verse 26 continues, they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. Ah! Now we realize that all this time these Canaanites, they had Dinah. All the negotiations we saw earlier were under duress. Now we know why Jacob is so cautious at the beginning. Now we know why the brothers agreed to to move forward instead of just killing Shechem when he came to see them or or spitting in his face and walking away. The Canaanites had Dinah. But now they've rescued their sister by killing all the men of the city. All opposition has been put down. And with the men of the city gone, they ransacked the place. Verse 27. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. If Jacob and his family were rich before, they've come out of this a whole lot richer. The Canaanites had looked greedily at the Israelites. Livestock, property, beasts. But now all the wealth, all the wives, all the children of the Canaanites were now in Israel's hands. Conflict has its rewards. And how does Jacob react to all this? Verse 13. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble upon me by making me stink the inhabitants of the land. Canaanites and the Parasites. Funny, isn't it? Not talking about concern for Dinah. Not scolding the Simeon and Levi for massacring a whole town. He's talking about his reputation and the safety of his household. My numbers are few, he says. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Jacob Jacob had no part in this plan. Maybe he was even thinking of going along with integrating if they got circumcised. His sons had done it behind his back. But now he was going to get blamed for it. And that's what he told them off for. But Simeon and Levi are defined. This is not just about plundering the Canaanites. That was just a bonus, really. They were defending the honor of their sister. Verse 31. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? At the one level, you can understand their anger and indignation, can't you? I would be so angry if anyone did that to my sister. You can understand the need to, to, to rescue Dinah. You can understand that they needed to get her out of the place of danger. She was kidnapped, for goodness sake, held hostage by this weird old rapist who wants to marry her. You can understand how they need to save her and they have to kill people to do it. You'd do that for your sister, wouldn't you? And yet in the cold light of day, their response a massacre of a whole town of people was simply wrong. 
They could see so clearly the awful crime that Shechem had committed, but they could so easily excuse the awful crime that they committed in response. The verdict on their actions is given for us in chapter 49. Chapter 49, verse 5 and 6. Jacob, on his deathbed, when he comes to bless his sons, says this, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and scatter them in Israel. And when the promised land was carved up among the tribes, Levi wasn't given any land. Again, 48 cities scattered among the tribes, and Simeon's inheritance was territory within the territory given to Judah. God says they did wrong. Now this whole chapter is full of wrong, isn't it? Everything's wrong in this chapter. Jacob is wrong. Shechem is wrong. Hamor is wrong. The brothers are wrong. Everyone's wrong. Maybe except for poor Dinah. How do things go so wrong? There's lots of Bible themes in this passage. There's love, there's justice, there's vengeance, there's circumcision, there's intermarriage, there's promised land, but, but there's one thing missing in this chapter. One thing that's there in nearly every other chapter of the Bible and is missing here. Take a break for a moment. Turn to the person next to you. And try and look at this passage and try and work out what's the one word that is missing in this whole passage. Go on. Have a break. Talk to people. What's missing? Okay, what is it? God, exactly right. No mention of God in the whole passage. It's just like people are acting as if he's just completely not there. It's all wrong, isn't it? Actually, the start of it, they're in the wrong place. Remember what Jacob promised God back in chapter 28? Tell with me back to chapter 28. Chapter 28, verse 20. Chapter 28 verse 20, Jacob makes the vow and says, If God is with me and will keep me in the way I go, this is, this is a Bethel, isn't it, on the way out, huh? When he's running away. 
Give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, that I come again to my father's place in peace, and the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. Where is that? Bethel. He's not in Bethel. He's in this other place where he settles and builds an altar to God. The place where Shechem lives. Has he forgotten his promise? Or is the place just looks so good that he decides to settle here and not go to better? And when this awful thing happens, when, when Dinah is raped and kidnapped, what does Jacob do? Instead of crying out to God, he waits for his sons. And his sons, they don't cry out to God either. Jacob and his family, they are the special chosen people of God. And when the terrible things happen, what do they do? God's people are taking things into their own hands. I'm not saying they shouldn't have taken any action, but surely as God's people, the very first thing they should have done is to cry out to him, and then work out what to do, like Jacob did in the last chapter. Remember when Esau was coming? With his four hundred men, what does he do? He cries out to God, he humbles himself, he prays to God for deliverance, he calls upon God, remember your promises. And only then he starts to make his plans. And last week we thought that Jacob has finally changed. Last week we thought that the encounter with God has, and his new name has, has made him a new man. And he is. And then in this final stress, the old man's back. And his sons are even worse than him. They go straight into this old political deceptive mode like, like Jacob used to. And they sin. And brothers and sisters, we are new people. We have been given new birth. We have been born again. We have been given God's Spirit, so we want to obey Him from the heart. But we, we still have the sinful nature. We still have the flesh. We, and like Jacob, sometimes the old man, the old lady, reappears. Like Jacob and his sons, we are people of God. We are God's precious chosen ones. We are heirs of the promises. We are worshippers of the true and living God who, who live among a pagan people. But when trouble comes, when disaster strikes, when things go wrong, sometimes we forget who we are. We forget who we are. And we forget who God is. And we forget to stop and pray and to cry out to God for help, to acknowledge our weakness and acknowledge His greatness. And we try to handle things on our own. And we use the old methods that we saw our fathers and our mentors and our predecessors using. And, and we do things which that one level might be understandable and justifiable, but in the cold light of day, they are plain wrong. Friends, we are God's people. Never forget that. Jesus died to make us His own. We have been bought with Jesus' precious blood. We belong to Him. We have access to the Father through Him. 
when times of difficulty, when times of disaster, when times of trouble come, do nothing without crying after him first. Yes, we all need to use our brains. Yes, we need to use wisdom. I'm not saying you have to wait for specific instruction from God before you do anything. He has spoken everything we need to know is in his word, but we need wisdom to apply his word to our situation, don't we? The Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 5, coming up on the screen, if any of you lacks wisdom, next slide, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Pray, my friend. Pray. Pray for deliverance. Pray that God through His Word would lead you to act rightly in according to His Word. And not to act sinfully by seeking to right a wrong with another wrong. When we look at Simeon and Levi, we we see something of Jacob's character in them, don't we? Jacob, the liar, the cheat, and his sons pulling off the biggest constant. Better and bigger than Jacob ever did. Following in the footsteps of their father. Being like the old Jacob. You see, Jacob was still a work in progress. God was changing him. And we've seen that over the weeks, haven't we? God had changed him, but there was still a long way to go. And he still goes, moves forward two steps, back one step. And Simeon and Levi, they were following the example of the old man, the old Jacob. And becoming even worse than he was. People of God, do not follow someone else's old man. Anyone's. Each of us are being renewed. Each of us are being changed in the image of Christ, just like Jacob was, but none of us are there yet. Now, there's a number of us in this congregation who are leaders among God's people, and, and leaders have a great responsibility to set a good example for the people of God. Not many should aspire to be teachers, the Bible says, for we who judge, who teach will be judged with more strictness. But brothers and sisters, still be careful how you follow your leaders. Leaders, be careful about setting yourself up as someone to imitate. Even the Apostle Paul, the Apostle himself says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Whenever he tells people to imitate him, he's always in a specific area where he is setting a godly example to them in imitation of Christ. It's not a blanket thing. Brothers and sisters, imitate your leaders. Imitate those who disciple you. In so far as we are imitating Christ. In whatever ways your leaders are imitating Christ, imitate us. But beware, there is still the old man there. Careful not to imitate those bits. For even in God's church, leaders will disappoint you. 
Every single one of us, without exception. Jacob was the flawed leader of God's people at that point of time. He was the one who knew God. Simeon and Levi, they only knew God through him. But thank God that we have a flawless leader in Jesus. Thank God we have the one whose example is the only one we can unreservedly follow. Who never tried to right a wrong by committing another one. Always entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. In the end, we are all disciples, not of anyone else, but of Jesus Christ. Well, in spite of Israel's sin, in spite of the brother's wickedness, in spite of the fact they didn't call on God, in spite of the fact that he's not even mentioned in this passage, God is still at work. Simeon and Levi crushed the enemy that has mistreated one of God's people and misappropriated the sign of circumcision. And looking back, we can see God's hand of judgment. Diana is rescued. People of God rescued from the kidnapper. And looking back, you can see God's hand of deliverance. Jacob and his family get all the wealth of these people. And looking back, you can see God's hand of blessing. You see, God in His grace is still using even the wickedness of these people to accomplish His purposes and to fulfill His promises. Simeon and Levi still get judged for their actions. But God uses them. God is able to use evil for good. doesn't make it any less evil. God is able to bring good out of evil. God is able to bring good out of the wickedness of the wicked men who crucified His Son. Brought the greatest good of all out of that, didn't He? Because through the death of Jesus we can have forgiveness and life. But that didn't make it any less evil. God brings good out of evil. God is gracious. But this also means that we need to be wary of judging by appearances. Just because God uses something for good doesn't mean that it is good. Hmm? Just because God grants so-called success to some church or ministry doesn't necessarily mean that it is faithful. Just because things seem to be going well doesn't mean that God is pleased with everything we do. In the end, we need to test everything by God's Word. And in everything, look to the example of His Son. Brothers and sisters, what do we do when trouble comes into our lives? What should be our first reaction when we face the problems that seem to overwhelm us? How should we begin to deal with issues that affect us in a deep and 
emotionally charged way. Well, there are many things we need to do. But whatever we do, do so remembering that we live in the presence of God. We do so remembering that whatever we do, we are God's people, saved by His blood, bearing His name, inheriting His promises. And whatever we do, we must begin in honest, heartfelt, desperate prayer, remembering our unworthiness, Remembering God's grace that He has shown to us in Jesus. Acknowledging our sinfulness and our own tendency for evil. Admitting our propensity to see it in others and excuse it in ourselves. Beg Him for wisdom. To act in a Christ-like, godly, measured, just way to trust God that He will fulfill His promises for us. Let's pray. Oh Father and our God we confess that so often when things happen and when difficulties affect us that we forget who we are in you and we forget that we are your people and we just try and act in our own ways and we know that's wrong We're sorry about that, Lord. Father, please help us to to always remember who we are in Christ. We are yours, purchased by your blood, living in your presence, being given your spirit, given new hearts and new lives. Help us to live that new life that you have given us. Help us to always be seeking your wisdom, knowing the deceitfulness of our own hearts, and therefore calling upon you to, in your mercy, grant us the wisdom to act aright. Keep us from the temptation of Repaying evil with evil. Taking vengeance without looking for your hand in it. And waiting for your justice in the end. Forgive us for the time where we sought to take shortcuts. Try and get what we think is, is ours in ways that are wrong and don't honour you. Father, please continue to change us into the likeness of Christ. 
Help us to keep remembering to put off the old person, to put on the new one. It's being renewed in the image of Christ, being made like Him. Keep us, we pray, always mindful of your grace, knowing that in the end that you are working out your purposes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.